the that's what's like inspired me to make these communities. Definitely get gets into moral philosophy some though, right? Because like that same yeah. set of preconditions that you just said can be taken in like a like a very very negative lens in terms of like a lot of dictators and have been trying to use effectively that same model of saying like per like get rid of all of the blemishes and create this perfect society, right? What's up, everybody? Today I've got someone with a, a unique career path, but incredible success. He specialized in a lot of short stack uh, poker, heads up, sit and goes, and he made tons of money from all that and became an instructor doing all that as well. And went from there to succeeding in crypto. He ended up becoming a CEO of his own project. Layer Zero, we'll go into that in a little bit. And uh, apparently he's had incredible success. Is a little bit under the radar. Brian Pellegrino. What's been going on? Hey man, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've known about you a bit for some time. I mean, I met you also. Um, I mean, I've seen you post as... Primordial AA, I think that's how you were known in the poker community for a while. But what I didn't know was all these like secret um, short stack things to make money. I, who would have thought that people would just be dusting it off at, you know, five big blind cash games, buying cash games, uh, just buying like tiny amounts and, and play, or these like... Um, the sit and goes or hyper sit and goes where it seems like there's no play and no edge. That's that would have been my first thought. But why don't you tell us? Uh, I don't know if these things, these edges still exist now at all. Maybe they exist somewhere. But why don't you tell us a bit about like how you made your money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, long, I actually don't know if the edges exist anymore now, but I, I got started early in poker and I was like 15 years old, started playing MTTs, whatever. Uh, eventually sort of like found footing with, with heads up sit and goes. This is before they introduced, um, you know, all these alternative formats or it was just uh, 75, um, big blind tournaments, uh, with fixed blind schedules every 10 minutes. Um, you know, at that time they went up to five K's, but they didn't run that much. And then eventually they introduced turbo and, and super hyper turbos, which were like 25 minutes uh, with really aggressive blind schedules. Um, yeah, it was pretty interesting. I think a lot of cash players, uh, didn't really realize how good it was like Ike and, uh, Lucky Chewy, a couple other people came and, and tried to play them eventually, but like good heads up single players, you know, you're talking, you're going to make somewhere between probably the better ones are making between 40 and like a hundred, yeah, four forty and $120,000 a month, like pr pretty consistently. So you can make kind of like maybe a million bucks uh, is kind of like the better players. I know Green had a multi-million dollar year. Sky did phenomenally well. So there, there were a bunch of people who did that. Um, and like you were saying, eventually found these uh, pusher fold games on 88, which was like min-max buy-in of five big blinds, but ran all the way up to 501K. And that year was just like me, True Teller, and like a couple other people. And those games were like in incredibly good. Um, yeah. Yeah, who would have thought the random five big blind buy-in games would be like amazing on this obscure site uh, i think it goes to show that market research can be really valuable even though like people in poker don't necessarily think of it like that i i can say um yeah i don't think uh the sit and go uh situation is nearly as good as it 
as it once was. That much I'm pretty confident about. Um, but maybe on some obscure sites or whatever, if people have, if they have like these sort of sit and goes where it's like these short tournaments, they're pretty good. I can tell you, I, I remember playing them myself and thinking, wow, these guys f***ing suck. Um, I think that's what most for, people thought, but like, it, you you know, if you were good, you were going to get like, call it in hyper turbos, um, which you could get like really, really consistent action. Uh, you're going to have like four to four and a half percent uh, ROI. And you could get 4,000 plus games a month, like pretty consistently. Um, yeah. Yeah, four to four and a half percent ROI, probably for a lot of people, doesn't sound like all that much. But imagine if people probably don't think of it as imagine if you were like the casino and you had four fucking percent return on, you know, every 20 minutes or whatever you did. I don't know how long these things last, but that would no, like, they're, add they're, up they're very like... fast. Yeah, like I, I think average time was probably like five and a half or six minutes. Like they're fast and you're turning over, you know, you're making 40 bucks a game and you're turning over 4,000, 4,000 something games a month or something. I guess it's yeah. 40 at 1Ks and you mix mixed stakes, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, this seems like there was quite a bit of money at it. Who would have thought? I mean, that seems like a crazy edge actually for a hyper sit and go. Four and a half edge? What? Yep. I mean, go. I'm sure you can shark scope it. I mean, the shark scope still exists, but I'm sure you can go look up. I bet. I bet all of the good players who still play now are some, somewhere in that three to five percent range. I mean, that's pretty wild. Um, yeah, I like really missed out, but I, I myself didn't really understand some of the uh, metrics to look at while I was playing. I was just like a poker player, thinking, oh, okay, I'm just gonna be good at this game and find some people that are bad and battle people and try to win. Um, but yeah, if you're looking at things from an analytical perspective, that's hard to beat, especially considering the volume that you get at. I mean, it reminds me a lot of like looking at it from like a trading angle versus looking at it as like, I'm going to battle players and looking at it as like a sport kind of angle with like looking at it more from dividends. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I liked that it was just like. Everything else felt like, like, obviously, MTTs were, like, max ball. You win, like, two tournaments a year, and that just, like, dictates your entire profitability. And then, like, um, cash felt like you needed to be able to get action at these, you know, your games at the highest stakes would, would dictate a lot if you if you weren't, like, selling off a ton of them. And so just, like, having those games run and getting action, whereas, like, heads up and goes again were just, if you put in hours and you were good enough to, to be able to, like, battle everybody and make sure you had lobby control, like, you were always going, like, it was incredibly consistent. You'd have, like, one losing month every, like, two to three years or something, right? Um, so it was just, like, this very nice churn of, of X dollars a month. So, yeah. Yeah, it actually sounds very appealing. Um, but as I said, I think I think it's over, which you never know. It's hard to, like, you can't, it's hard to, like, predict what's out there in, um, you know, when all the live games and all the online games combine, like maybe there's a similar solution. I've absolutely played in live games where I thought, wow, these games are super soft. Um, but yeah, it's really important to look at the the way that your edge plays out. Um, the Yeah, like you said, if you get inconsistent action at cash games, even if you're really good, you're not going to make a whole lot of money. And then MTTs were kind of a nightmare, even in my experience. Uh, at least to make a living from, it would be you'd really have to uh, not give a shit about how much money you have. I, I never really made a, like a living from them. I just thought, wow, this is completely insane myself. 
Um, but cash games were probably uh, my second my second favorite. I, I just didn't realize for a while I didn't realize how bad people were at cash games. Um, but maybe it's just my own talents or that kind of thing. Uh, it's just interesting you found this niche and it's uh, and yeah, I um, it's I think something that people can really learn from if they search and do the research and find the spots. Is that what how you got into crypto too? Uh, yeah, I mean, crypto was like 20, anybody in poker kind of heard about crypto 2010-ish, 2011, Black Friday happened, and all of like the shady sites that stayed in the US started using Bitcoin to like deposit. So everyone who was still playing was like active, um, or like I at least had exposure to Bitcoin back then. Um, but I didn't like really get into it until 2013. Um, when my brother and brother-in-law convinced me to like start mining bitcoins, we was running like racks of miners in my brother-in-law's garage, um, and that's that's when I like really, really started uh, starting getting more involved. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you got involved around those times, I mean, I imagine the the analytics for the payoffs of, dip, of Bitcoin were crazy. There were so many trading opportunities, and uh, if someone was a trader, it just seemed like it the easiest uh, print ever from what I heard just because yeah I mean I I was I was less like I was less sophisticated about it back then it was more like try to buy you know I was around for ETH ICO and like a bunch of this other like around that era of like just trying to figure out what is good what is bad it was more like trying to invest in a company versus like creating sort of like trading trading strategies or algorithms um so yeah it was more of that at the time um which I think were remote, you know, people started to get into ARB and do some other stuff, but most of us who transitioned from poker, I don't think immediately went to that lens. Like there were other, you know, JMO was there, a bunch of, bunch of other people were kind of early-ish. Oh, so you were trying to figure out which altcoins to invest in, which... Um, Plus your like- core Bitcoin thesis. But yeah, yeah, it was a mixture of like, okay, Bitcoin, like everybody kind of believed Bitcoin had legs. And there was like, what else is interesting? Uh, I, I think the answer to that is not much. That has proven <laughs> to be true so far. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, even to this day, all, all I really know about crypto is that most of the altcoins and all these other projects are like basically shit. I mean, it seemed like a far com- more complicated problem than, um, you know, just throw money into Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, Ethereum came out of that era, and obviously, Ethereum is done unbelievably. Like, there's a bunch of things, but but it's very um, extremely power law distributed. Let's say that. Oh, that was a kind of my read on it. Also, I just at some point I realized I didn't want to deal with it, um, and I, I wasn't like obsessed enough to learn every little detail of every every project. I, I think it's sort of like poker where. You have to be obsessed unless you have like a private game to win online. You have to be super into it or to win like yep. serious money anyway. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, poker was 70 hours a week for every, every year that I ever played. And I imagine it's been the same for you. Like you just you, it's one of those things where it's so zero sum that you have to effectively be one of the best in the world or like play for very low stakes or kind of get pushed out of any, any real opportunity. Um, I don't know if that's exactly true these days just because of the way things have worked. I think that's true online, on the internet, um, pretty much. 
But I don't think that, I mean, even then, it's not 100% true because someone could just find this 8-8 game you're talking about and just crush that. Um, yeah, I guess from my lens, like, with heads-up sit and goes, you were always, it wasn't like catch where, that's why I always hated about heads-up cash. It's like I would sit with somebody and they would just like sit out and not do anything. Like in heads-up sit and goes, if you're in the lobby, you're basically open for business. If somebody sits you, you're going to play the game. If you have negative edge against you, they're going to extract it from you. And so like you, if you're sitting in the lobby, you're confident enough that nobody can beat rake against you because if they can, they're just going to take that and extract the edge endlessly. And so it was a, a constant battle of you are good enough to maintain lobby control or like you better move down three stakes. Oh yeah, that is how sit and goes work. Um, it's very, very winner take all. I remember that specifically. Like hold the lobbies, yeah. or you don't. <laughs> and if you hold the lobbies, you get everything. And if you don't hold the lobbies, you don't get shit. Well, yep. you do. You can. You have to wait till the other person goes online. You got to sneak your way in, um, or you got to like battle their ass. Um, so why don't you tell us how you got involved? How did you end up? Putting in 70 hours a week, were you obsessed in the beginning? I think I read also that you got scammed a couple times in the beginning of your career. Yeah, I mean, basically, I started playing poker when I was young, 15. Before that, I was like, um, I just liked games. I played infinite board games. I, I played a bunch of video games ultra competitively. Uh, and poker was just another game to me. It was basically another video game. Um Started playing, dropped like went to school for computer science, dropped out after three years to play full time. I did like eight years, 80 countries. So I just traveled a ton while I was playing poker. And it was like the only thing that I did. If there was any time that I had nothing else to do, like my default state was to be playing poker. So yeah, I was definitely obsessed. There was nothing more I would have loved to do than just play and study uh, at all moments. And then like, Eventually, I just I, I lost to that eventually. My last year was actually my best financial year ever. Uh, and it was a year I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Um, and that was the last year I ever played, um, like, yeah, even basically a hand. I think I played a, a couple of games since ever. Uh, why, why, why did you stop? Why couldn't you do it anymore? So the last year that I played was it became like – most people cared about the money in poker much more than I did. Uh, and I, I got to the point where all I ever wanted to do was battle people. I just played people better than me all the time. People thought I was, I was crazy because I just wanted to constantly, like, I just wanted to get better. It was the competitive part that was interesting to me. The last year was much harder to get people to play me. It became very hard for me to get action. I was sitting around like 30 plus tables of cash games and heads of Sango lobbies just waiting um, for people to play me. And I felt like all day I was just sitting, waiting for fish to come and just kind of like going through the motions. Like it stopped becoming like an interesting mental exercise. Uh, and I felt just like a monkey clicking buttons. Like it became totally uninteresting to me uh, at, the, at the end of that year. And so I had my best year ever. And I was just like, I, I can't do this anymore. That was just boring to me. It was not intellectually stimulating at all. Um, and so I just like, I just fell out of love with it. I just didn't want to continue to do that. Yeah, that's understandable. I mean, I had something kind of similar go on with myself. Um, I mean, I did learn mixed games. I, I eventually found something wildly different to be mentally stimulated on, but it requires like a certain way of looking at things. Um, I didn't orient what I was trying to gain in terms of uh, money. Um, but I just realized that, 
you know, there's other kinds of sort of currencies to gain. And I got this idea, okay, what if I tried to gain um, in terms of positive impact and influence instead? And I just looked at that as like the currency in which to reshift my entire career on. That opened, that made things way spicier. That, let me tell you, that, that really, that, that took me in all kinds of different directions, basically. Um, yeah, I, I haven't caught up with you in a long time. So I've got, I mean, I, I've followed like loosely uh, some of the stuff, but like, I, I don't think I've ever really heard of what, what that has been like. All right, well, let me, let me give you some cliff notes. Um, first of all, there's a big spiritual waking, massive epiphany. Um, that's kind of what triggered it or a big part of it. And then at some point Africa got in the picture and then helping kids. And then there's, um, uh, I had this like, uh, I was like throwing parties in London. And then I went to the Cannes film festivals and film festivals. And then I, you know, I tried to become an actor and then I dressed up as a lion recently. Um, and <laughs> that's uh, some of the things I've been doing. Um, and now I have this idea, oh, let's start a part podcast and become a YouTube creator and all that. And um, yeah, I mean, that those, those are some cliffs over the last few years, basically. And I've uh, been working, working a, lot of, a lot of stuff. No one probably saw all these things coming. Um, there's not been a whole lot of money in it, if I'm really honest, uh, in any of the things I just mentioned. But there's been lots of laughs and lots of stories and uh, funny things happening. Um, I'm winning in that currency and those currencies. Like you said, it's, 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 it's own form of currency. So yeah, well, it's a few different, it's more like, uh, interesting stories and experiences. Yeah. I'm winning experiences. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm kind of rich in those, uh, these days, but I've heard, uh, yeah, I've heard you moved over to crypto. I don't 100% understand what you've been doing. Um, but it sounds like you've become, I understand you've become a CEO of like a legit project. I don't really know what it does. Uh, I do know that you have a LinkedIn, which by the way, uh, did enter the picture of what I'm supposed to do too. I try to become like a legit, you know, um, entrepreneur and all that stuff. So congratulations on being a legit entrepreneur and, you know, having a formal job. My, mine mine is that. a picture of a, peng a penguin. So I'm not sure that really counts, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's there. Let me see. Oh, it is a picture of Penguin, uh, to be fair. But it looks legit. If, you know, you got 500 plus connections. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been interesting. And like, you know, for me, I took I took a bunch of like when, when online poker got banned in the States, right? So I, I didn't move out of the country right away. I actually started a company. So I started a company in 2011, uh, sold it in 2013. And then when I stopped playing poker again, a couple of years later, um, I ended up like writing these machine learning models and I sold them to a bunch of the pro baseball teams. Um, and then I started another company in the Valley uh, that got acquired a couple of years later after that. And then I did academic research and uh, published some research with like AI research with Noam Brown, Facebook AI research. And, and then I started this company. So it's been like kind of a windy road of a bunch of different things, um, but, but it's been awesome. I, I've loved it. Can you tell us a bit about some of the different avenues of the road? Uh, I mean, AI research sounds interesting. It's kind of, um, I mean, I personally am starting to get a little bit interested in that. I, I just, from like the moral perspective, what AI might do, um, how intelligence works a bit. I kind of understand how it works. I think the center is the realm of like, I don't know what the f I'm talking about, 
But uh, yeah, these days AI security is a massive thing to be. Um, it's a massive subject. Yeah, and I mean it's even relevant to poker because uh, you know, like there's at some point poker AI is I at least think we're beating the top pros. I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, so yeah, I'm curious about your little detour there and how uh, you ended up with this uh, your your most recent detour of uh, layer zero. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the first company was uh, was Daily Fantasy Sports. So that was, you know, pre-DraftKings, pre-FanDuel blowing up and, like, it becoming a real industry. It was, like, at the very early cusp of that and sold that company when kind of the whole industry rolled up. Um, I had seen a bunch of people there making just, like, millions of dollars a year, basically just being, like, sports fans. Like, it felt like the early days of poker where, like, people had no clue what they were doing, but poker had gotten, like much more structured in how things were approached. And I saw DeepMind's like Atari demo. Um, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Like reinforcement learning seems super interesting. And so I just started building some models for fun. I hadn't like written code in eight years. Um, I showed it to a friend and he was like, you've got to talk to these guys who did some similar stuff in their uh, PhD program at MIT. So I talked to this group from MIT and they put me on the phone with Billy Bean, so like the founder of Moneyball and the GM of the Oakland A's, and then that became its whole thing. So I built these models for some of the pro baseball teams, sold them to the baseball teams, um, and then uh, after that started a company that was like totally orthogonal, ended up um, like ended up being this, this SaaS company, got acquired for $50 million by People AI, um, and then uh, Gnome Brown um, and... Um, and uh, DeepMind, well, actually, UAlberta at the time. So no one went to FAIR and uh, the UAlberta guys went to DeepMind, um, released these two papers on, on poker AI. And so I'd already been kind of into reinforcement learning. I was like, oh, like, this is pretty interesting. Looking at the approaches, uh, Gnome was much more like direct um, direct search and traversal. And the DeepStack guys, uh, the DeepMind DeepStack was the paper they wrote, was more like uh, pure neural net heuristics. Um, and so I was like, okay, like, let's mess around with this with me and my co-founders now, actually. And so we built uh, basically an AI that was like 5,000x more performant than the best poker AI in the world at the time. Um, in terms of how it converged, we invented this new CFR algorithm, did that, realized like, great, we published, but there was nothing interesting to, to do in terms of like business. And so then we started looking at... Um, looked at energy grid distribution. Uh, we looked at um, this really cool company um, who basically dealing like billions of dollars of produce and, and how like light affects, uh, how they can measure ripeness of tomatoes and, and produce in general with light and then using AI to, to do stuff there. And then we were looking into drug discovery and then ultimately ended up like building layer zero, which is this entirely different and orthogonal thing. And so like um, the thing we we're, ended we're up building to... was... was Hold on a second. Hold on a second. We're gonna we're gonna have to explain this word orthogonal to to myself and to the audience. Uh, I thought I had a good vocabulary, but I don't know. What ortho okay, this is this a timeout or is, or is this something orthogonal? No, no, no. This is this is basically orthogonal, like com completely um, different direction, right? Um, not uh, uh, okay. Oh, like yeah, a not along the same path. So we're yeah, okay. we're you know we're doing all of this AI research, and then um, you know I have okay. been very active in crypto at this point for the last seven years, and we saw this problem in the space um, that we thought was interesting. Like what Layer Zero does is just 
you really just send a message. Like you have a packet on the internet to send uh, data, like bytes of data between computers. Um, sure. you, you didn't have that packet for blockchains. You couldn't send data from Ethereum to BNB chain or Polygon. You just couldn't do it. And so we were trying to build something and we're like, oh, like this thing doesn't exist. And so we looked and looked and nobody had built it. And everybody who had tried to build it had built it in a really terrible way. Um, and then we basically in, in, invented our version of this this packet. And uh, it has been a really crazy couple of years. We've gone zero to $3 billion valuation at the company level within three years. Wow. I think we're one of the fastest growing companies in, in, in history. I think you know we did zero to three in like almost two years. Uh, it's been a little while since that round. Um, and, you know, growing, growing a company with 63 employees now, we've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We're now like operating at like very large scale. It's, it's, it's been, uh, an entirely new and interesting experience. Oh, well, that's a, that's a bit of a surprise. Okay. Um, yeah, well, congratulations on that success. I didn't realize you're, are you the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company. <laughs> yeah. Th- thank you. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. Okay, uh, it kind of sounds like finding a niche specialty in the market that was just lacking, where there's just like not very strong competition. Rhyme, reminds me a bit of the sit and go parallel they were talking about, and just um, hammering it home. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's just like I think lifetime. I've been. Like, I like to try new things, even if they kind of suck and don't work out sometimes. And so I've been early through a lot of stuff. Like, yeah, DFS before it became like a $50 billion industry, like poker in the very early days, AI back before this current AI boom, and people like really cared that much. Um, obviously, crypto very early, like, like I like just playing around with things. And I think that's, that's I don't know, been, been a path to like finding things before others. And then you just have to see if you think there's like a real edge there or it's, it's worth spending time in. Oh, that's, yeah, that's something that people can learn from. I also remember even as I was playing, like if I had done things like play on overseas, like overseas accounts sooner, or if I had, uh, if I had done a bunch of different things, if I got into crypto a bit more and didn't even focus so hard on the poker angle, um, it would have shifted my career a lot. If I did that, I would have made me like quite a bit more money if just like I had investigated certain pathways a little bit more. I mean, now I'm a bit more open-minded and I'm kind of looking in all kinds of different directions, but I'm like geared towards things that I think are more relevant to what, what my passions are, I would say. I'm not really in it for the money exactly. Um, but uh, I, the, I, there is something that I think was, is really relevant to positive impact and to potentially money. I just don't know how realistic it is these days. Um, but uh, I guess to do more with building communities. It, it looked like you do a li- you did a little bit with that. But I don't know if there's, is there a decent amount of money in that? Or what was your experience with that precisely? So when, when, you, when you talk about building communities, what, 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 exactly, um, like what, what exactly do you mean by that? Okay, well, we'd have to like reverse engineer what the what my goals are personally to get to this point of like why build communities because i was never exactly like a community guy you know fundamentally i wasn't like the guy like going out just by my own like first nature and being like yeah i'm gonna help the community and i'm gonna be a good uh fucking uh community guy that was never like my original thought process but I, thinking on the idea of like making mass 
uh, scalable positive impact. I came to this idea, I came to this idea like, well, what really matters is culture and what the cultural sort of norms are. If the culture is healthy, then, you know, the, the people prosper. If the culture is not healthy, people don't prosper. And a lot of like what goes on with the majority of people is they don't really actually have strong, um, you know, thought process behind many of the things that they do and their thought processes are quite arbitrary, in fact. And so it occurred to me like, okay, well, what if I could influence culture in some kind of scalable way? This came to, and I came to this idea of like getting involved in the media and this is where the podcast comes in. You know, like I, through this conversation, many people can be, can hear what, what I'm trying to say or what you're trying to say. They can help themselves become rich or whatever the fuck, right? Um, or even like talk about moral things or whatever. I'm personally interested. I, I didn't even know it, but I was interested in moral philosophy for a lot, a lot of time. But a big part of that is, okay, how the fuck do you create culture? How do you move culture? And so um, as it turns out, a big part of moving culture and a big part of making a difference is in building communities because community through communities, culture is created. And if the, the communities and the culture are strong enough, it influences other communities and if they have positive culture like healthy uh social strategies is one way of looking at it um but that people this is like the very analytical way of looking at it um then uh they prosper and other people prosper too but this is where you get into morality morality and healthy cultures are very much related so um the latest idea is basically to build healthy communities that that help people and also that help them make money and become like functional citizens. It's, it's functional citizens plus ethical equals prospering, right? Uh, so that's kind of what I've been going on now is like, let's build a fucking poker community. And people in crypto actually had these sort of dream ideas. I, I saw like they were, they had this idea of like building trust systems where there's um, like, this was something I, I got involved in briefly, but I realized it was way too, way over my head. Um, building like trust systems. So there's like social networks where if someone like does something bad, they're like outed very fast, etc. And I realized that was too complicated, but now I'm on the path of like, okay, let's make communities. Let's just see if like we can get these communities to do well or like a poker community to do well ish. And then branch from there to things related to philosophy and trading and things like that and health, um, and that kind of thing. Or make health like a subsection, yeah. actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it's super interesting. I, I always, like, I always find it hard. I, I was actually just thinking about this the other day of, uh, of, of what would you do if you wanted to, like, kind of, like, re, yeah, re, reset culture, right? Like, like, you're basically, like, in the most microcosm sense, you would need to like restart like a cult or a commune and like grow this kind of like belief base from there. But, but I think now, you know, that, that used to be the way you would have to do things if you wanted to try to like, or start a religion, I guess. But like now with just distribution being what it is, the, the fact that a podcast or, you know, Instagram or whatever it is, these things are, there are like, Distribution is near limitless such that you can have like a, a pretty crazy impact on the cultural structures and beliefs of people um, at wide scale in a way you've just never been able to. So I think it's probably like before I had taken the approach that a lot of things were, were too localized and not super interesting to me um, where we try to like, I don't know, I invest a lot in like technology, um, 
that, that are like technology that's structured to try to like change the world in a positive way. So a bunch of stuff with green energy and some of these other things are just things that the things that I fundamentally believe on that, that can like shape the, the way um, the world functions on like a, a reasonably large scale. But, but, I, but I do think there is kind of an opportunity now that there has never been uh, where, where community can like, you, you can have real impact over like a broad scale community, which is very interesting. Well, yeah, yeah, you can. Um, I mean, and I think also like the job markets and the way people, um, how do you say how we, the way people live is becoming more and more online. So it makes sense to like, if you can help people in that kind of direction, you know, get their lives together and that sort of thing, then, uh, you know, that can help a big on a big, uh, uh, really big scalable way. One of the, um, the areas I want to go go that I was going into was like children's education, but I, then I was like, okay, well, maybe let's just start to see if I can like teach some people how to play poker and like become poker professionals in these developing countries. Anyway, that's another big subject, but um, actually, you like hit a point with uh, this was kind of the function of religion is to just bypass all this logic and say like, all right, everybody, this is the good thing to do. You should do this. Here are the laws, and we're doing it and that was like the culture um that's how i look at religion is like the opposite of logic but it has a lot of logic to it in that it was like it just it bypasses all this bullshit of like oh what about this what about this it's like no 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 these are the laws these are the ten commandments and shut the fuck up and do them um and, <laughs> but if like the leader was good then you know the rest of the the country prospered but if the reader leader was shit you know everyone suffered and, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I've been really interested, um, or, well, I haven't been so interested precisely in crypto, but I found crypto plus these like positive technologies that you're talking about to be quite a good thing that kind of essentially nudge humanity in the right direction, like these green ener uh, energy source things or whatever. Like I want to be a bit more involved in those myself. And I find that to be like a, a wild rabbit hole of stuff. Um, I mean, Ed tech is going to be a big thing in some kind of near future. It's not quite there. It's it's not quite at like the crypto boom stages, but uh, you know how fintech was kind of a big thing. It still is, especially in developing countries. Ed tech will be a big thing, and there's going to be lots of AI stuff and presumably crypto stuff around that. I know that. Uh, that'd be. I, I hope. Mind. I hope huh? so. Like I, I've been, I, I've been a massive believer of ed tech for a very like I was super early to Coursera and Udacity. And like, I had such high conviction internally that the ability to have access to world-class professors and everybody free access for basically anybody in the world would do so much over a 20 to 30 year old, uh, 20 to 30 year time horizon to shape the way that a bunch of these um, emerging uh, nations basically would be able to uh, be, be able to, right. You would have access to, to how like, plumbing and electricity and uh, or electricians and nursing and all of these skills that are like uh, very underdeveloped in some, of, in some of these regions that you could just have like whether in computer science too like you want to learn and uh, basically have a job you can do from anywhere you can learn this from some of the best professors in the entire world and I've been so disenchanted over the last decade that most of it has turned into just like like, yeah, eventually they needed to come up with business models and they basically just turned into like credentialism. Like, oh, get this little mini degree and do this. Uh, so I, I really hope there is a way like internally, I believe um, there still should be a way that it can have such a large impact globally. Um, well, just speaking of which, a friend of mine and I have been talking about making community where 
almost exactly about doing that, right? Um, this is not my area of specialties, and he's like a professor. He's read like way more books than me, smart as right? But um, I mean, I don't know how many books you've read, but this rabbit hole goes super deep when we start talking about like, you know, stuff professors care about. But it's very interesting, I'll tell you that. If you start going deep into history, you really start to understand like why the world actually is the way it is and many of the nuances of things that go on. Um, but you're right, like one of the conditions pre the Renaissance, um, you know, in the middle, um, in here's an example actually, is uh, pre the Renaissance was essentially what you talked about. In the city of Florence, uh, there were people from all sorts of different fields kind of getting together and sharing knowledge intellectually and it created many geniuses or many like, uh, you know, um, prolific people in, uh, in the arts. Leonardo da Vinci was one of them, Michelangelo was another one. Um, but there are other ones too that people don't necessarily know about. But uh, that was what was required to create those conditions was just this like melding of ideas. Actually, I was like maybe involved in creating a community where that basically happens. There's about, uh, there's a few friends of mine who are essentially doing that in multiple cities, which is a really exciting idea because like if this happens in multiple cities, it could be a big thing. I, I wanted to create it myself in Los Angeles. Um, and since my little um, spiritual revelation, I found myself to be interested in a lot of different stuff as it turns out. Um, but uh, it gets it gets to the point where it's overwhelming. It's like the opposite problem of poker where it's like, holy f there's like things in all these different directions and like, oh, like now I got to become a CEO. Like probably becoming a CEO for you was not very easy. Uh, it's a very different skill set than in poker unless you were just naturally organized and knew how to run people or you know, teach people and that kind of thing. You have to deal with people uh, now. Whereas like poker, you didn't have to. Um, yeah. So what, what was your experience like becoming a CEO? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still not very organized. I, I, I don't know that I'm exceptionally good at it. Uh, I, I have two co-founders. So like in general, I think it changes a lot. Most of the things I had built before had been like really pure technologists and teams of 10 or less just trying to like do a thing. And now as we've scaled, like till we got to 25 people, we were just like completely flat and non-hierarchical and it was largely engineering driven. And it was like, okay, like this is just sort of like assemble amazing people and like everybody can kind of just move in the right direction. But now when you start getting past that 35, 50, 65, uh, things really start to break a little bit if you don't add some structure. Um, I'm still messy in general, like things that I'm very good at our, our like product positioning architecture all of these things it, it kind of towards technology and like how to actually build the thing uh not very good at like the people side um which means i just need to be like very intentional about like hiring really really amazing people um that, that are just like good at that people who are good at things that i'm not good at and so i think that's been the biggest thing is just like the ability yeah. to attract really 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 high level talent and make sure you have people who are just like plugging the holes that you suck at because i'm still bad at a lot of things for sure well yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, I was literally about to say the same thing it's just like why not and this is what i did essentially myself is i found someone who's like really organized and like kind of the opposite of me whereas i'm a bit more free-flowing a lot of the time so i thought okay i need someone who's just like you know just has a stable job every day and you know wakes up and does their thing and like has and like writes out the things that need to be done and like organizes this shit for me um so i got like a uh what is it uh, an executive assistant <laughs> and that sort of and that kind of thing i'm trying to shift towards becoming a ceo of, of, of sorts um along those lines 
But yeah, uh, find people that are really good at the things that you're not good at, or not very good at, you could say. And uh, that, I've been like on that path as well. I'm curious how you did find those people though, because you know you're going out in the world, you're playing poker, and then all of a sudden, okay, you want to do something else? You want to become a CEO, or you want to get into crypto? How the f do you find? really good people for the audience who aspires to be entrepreneurs or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, ultimately I think it is like your number one job as a, as a CEO or like a leader to be able to, to be able to like sell your vision, both to people within the company and people externally. And so like we, I think that's something that naturally I was like pretty good at. Like we had some really, really crazy hires before we ever, even had raised significant money, like, like actually probably the craziest hire we had, um, was this, this guy named Daniel who, uh, went, went to Phillips. who's was like, you know, number, number one school in the, in the U S uh, when he was like 13, when he was 15, he was, uh, commuting to Harvard and MIT to take PhD level courses in math and physics, uh, went and studied economics under John Nash, became the chief economist for the U S department of state then became the chief economist at BMP Paribas and like convinced him to leave that job to come join us. Right. Like, I think like those things are like a testament to be like, you like, like those people don't take those chances. If you're not able to like sell that, the, the group of people you've assembled is amazing. And that like what you're doing is amazing and impactful and like has scale and has all of these things. And so I think like a large part of what you need to do in general is, is just the ability. Like for me, it's always been like, you need, maximum conviction uh, for sure in what you're doing and just need to be like an unfettered sort of like enthusiasm about it. Like uh, since we started this, really? there's nothing else that I wanted to do. And I was just like obsessive, super, super, super obsessive. Um, and I think that just bleeds through into everything. Um, I, I, I guess that makes sense. The funny thing is the things that you say are very like emotion based. They're not it's not like, oh, you need like a really strong selling point. Like there needs to be clearly some money to be made kind of thing, which is what I thought you were going to say or thought you thought that would be a big thing. Because like, as you're explaining layer zero to me, it sounded like obvious that this was required um, and that it would probably make a lot of money. But uh, yeah, well, the way you're explaining it sounds more like it's an emotional thing where you just like talk about it in a way that really appeals to people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think right? like when, when you look at early founders, like every 10 out of 10 founders are going to be like, oh, yeah, this thing I'm doing, like, look at this projected chart. It goes like this. Right. And like, just nobody yeah, believes yeah, I've it. Seen right? it. You'd I've, be like, I've, got a I've great seen it so many plan. times. I'm like, OK, cool money. story. Of course. Of course. Everybody will show you that same thing. And so like what you're really doing, whether whether it's you're talking to an investor, whether you're talking to an employee, whether you're talking to whatever, like they're underwriting the idea in general, but really their belief in like you being the person who's able to execute it. And I think that is like, that's where like the emotional stuff comes in. It's obviously like your competence and these other things come in. They, they want you to be like smart and motivated. No, you're not going to quit when it gets hard because like you actually believe it should exist, whether they give you money or not, or join the company or not. Like, um, I think most of that is like wheels were set in motion. It was very clear. We were going to do what we were doing no matter what. And like people wanted to align themselves with that and kind of be along for the journey um, versus like, I have a plan, please give me money or join me so that this plan can be better. It was like, this thing is happening. 
these are a bunch of amazing people. Like, here's why we're so excited about it. And they were like, please let me be involved with that. Um, so like okay. actually all the way through, even our round at 3 billion, like we've never had a pitch deck. We've never been actively fundraising ever. Um, okay. Everything was through like us being preempted. Oh, um, well, uh, I mean, I'm even thinking about how this relates to myself, which is a bit of a caveat. I mean, the vision that I have is batshit insane. So it's kind of like, but I absolutely think it's like an inevitability or is required um, just based off of logic, frankly. Um, but basically, I'm trying to like increase max scalability of positive change. And it occurred to me, in fact, that that is actually, and this is what kind of blew my mind. And I kept seeing it over and over when I looked into like what these ancient religion, religions said, they were essentially like, they were like, it was like looking into the Sims of, um, of poker, if you know what I mean. It's like, you see what they say, and if you think about it, you realize, holy shit, this is actually like a map of sorts towards, you know, creating a society that's sort of ideal and without, um, you know, without any blemishes, etc., and like an optimal version of society. And so I realized, okay, so it looks like the game theory solution for humanity is literally in the f***ing religions, basically, or suggested by the religions, but you can derive it through logic yourself. So that's kind of like, the that's what's like inspired me to make these communities. Definitely get, gets into moral philosophy some though, right? Because like that same yeah. set of preconditions that you just said can be taken in like a, like a very, very negative lens in terms of like a lot of dictators and have been trying to use effectively that same model of saying like per, like get rid of all of the blemishes and create this perfect society, right? Um, well, um, it's, it's very interesting how you define net positive good, I guess. Well, um, there's, there's, it's actually not as complicated as it's, as it sounds. And in fact, by the way, there's something um, hidden that I think is like kind of sacred in many of these cartoons, because these cartoons explore these ideas. Uh, like, did you ever watch Naruto? Or did you ever watch like, um, what's another one? Uh, Maybe even the Matrix uh, could sure. possibly be like that. Matrix not so much, but um, there's like many. And we're kind of one interesting thing is we're kind of getting to this point now, of where this could become a reality. But um, you know, there's many um, science fiction films like uh, what was it, I Robot, for example, that totally explore this, where um, you know, a uh, super AI basically decided, okay, I know what's best for everybody. I'm going to force it upon everybody. Um, and Naruto actually has exactly this, goes into this, where the, the, the arc villain, Madara, says, okay, everyone's f***ed up. There's, there can be no peace unless basically I fucking make peace for everybody and I just conquer the whole world and say, okay, now I'm going to put the world under an entire spell um, and... Uh, then the world looks like this. And uh, there's another one too um, called uh, Tengen, Tengen um, Lagan, something like that, where there's some, some like super arch villain that essentially decides, okay, if life goes out of control, it's going to ruin the universe. So we have to like submit the entire fucking universe. Um, and they were called the anti-spirals, like this black and white character was ultra powerful. And they were like all logic and like will essentially and they were like forcing in that way. Um, but the, the biggest point is really quite simple in that it's required that something like free will has to exist 
um, and for people to like essentially decide for themselves to, um, you know, do what is good, which sounds like a very hard thing to do, but actually it's like, in my eyes, it's, it's kind of inevitable in a way, because what is good by definition, you can see that it's good. You can see that it like creates good results. Like, you know, um, a community that is peaceful and harmonious, you know, people just don't cheat each other and things like that. It speaks for itself. It's, it, you don't have to force it. Right. It will like, even if people are like, I don't know about this. Um, if, if they're like, yeah, like, I don't know about trying this, uh, like trying this no cheating thing or whatever <laughs> of like, this like I'm gonna do the ethical business thing um, or have this doggy dog mentality, right? If they see like another society where people have that mentality and they're all like doing well, uh, etc., they're all you know doggy dog, doggy dogging over there, you know, back in their corner, and they're like pushed away from that society. They'll be like, "Holy, f this sucks! I want to get on board with those guys who are all working together." Like uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna contribute to society again. Like that, that's just naturally gonna happen, right? Um, so, but anyway, I mean that's also, by the way, in the religions is you're not supposed to like, you know, force people onto your beliefs. It's like, um, that's very like even like Buddha and like Jesus did not do such things. They they prescribe precisely the opposite. Um, but yeah, uh, it gets down that road. But that's that's kind of a gist of what's been going on with me lately. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, starting with communities that actually do something good and a new Renaissance era, um, it's going to be a minute before that one happens, but new communities is a good start and it's inspirational. I think that could lead to a lot of, um, potential. And it seems like crypto is like straight up that alley in some ways from like some of the, uh, little bit of the white papers that I was reading. I think Aragon has something to do with this kind of idea, but many there's many idealistic groups that were doing such things, albeit to mix success from what I understand. Yeah, I think the early roots of crypto are definitely based around that, right? It was like long, strong, like libertarian leanings. It was really about um, disintermediating uh, kind of useless, um, you know, useless intermediaries, um, creating this... Um, system that, that allows people who are largely disenfranchised now, right? Banking the unbanked, like all of these things that are that are, that are meant to be sort of like empowering, take away external controls, take away a, in surface area for corruption, um, have something that's fair by nature and provably fair. Uh, I think those those are definitely a lot of the roots of the of the entire space. Yeah, yeah. That's what um that kind of area was something that I wanted to get more involved in. It might be, make sense for me to like be more involved in crypto to just help create these communities essentially um what are your plans for the future what uh, are you going to keep uh uh yeah are you going to keep focusing on uh layer zero uh you're going to try to keep scaling that uh you have other ideas that got going on yeah yeah i mean for for the i mean one of the things that comes with like building a company that has some, some degree of success is like, you just have so many people who are, uh, who are reliant on you, right? You have all, all of these people, um, like we're in Canada, we're, we're hundred percent in person. So we're not remote at all, which is kind of like unique, uh, in this day and age. And so like, 
59 people who are not Canadians have packed up their entire lives and like moved everything to like be here working on this. Like a lot of really smart people have staked their, uh, you know, their careers, like a large chunk of their lives on the, on the belief of, of us like building something amazing. So definitely for the foreseeable future, this is, uh, you know, this is what I'll be doing. Um, I, I do think, like I said, I, I, um, I do a lot of sort of like investing and, and, uh, philanthropy stuff on the side. So one of the companies I was talking about earlier is, is this um, clean water company that I think is really fascinating. So like we donate panels, they bring them to, uh, to villages in Kenya and Guatemala and places where like water is just completely inaccessible. And there's like a lot of like, you know, you try to use that for good as, as best as you can. And you try to like empower people who are building things that are like, um, you know, you think have a good chance of having, having like real positive impact overall in the world. I'm a big believer just in like using technology as a, as a lever to do that effectively. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah, this I'll, I'll be doing this more than anything. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, um, I actually got involved as well in um, doing precisely what you're doing or focusing more on like a, uh, a couple things. Firstly, becoming more of an, an angel investor in positive projects. Um, I mean, this begged the question for me, what is the biggest scalable possible dif possible difference? Like I did in fact do something quite similar. I, uh, I, I gave some money to a foundation that built some wells in Ghana. Ghana is one of the more developed uh, African countries. So is Kenya. Kenya is really up yep. there as well. Those are like, I, I in fact visited them. Um, and uh, it did occur to me, okay, it actually makes sense to get on the business side of these sorts of things. And I started, in fact, uh, reaching out to groups. I've, this is relatively recent. And then I get deal flow myself and I like decided, okay, I'm gonna like try to partner people with the project that they like to invest in because this is something that could be really scalable, right? Like if you connect people that want to like build, um, build uh, or want to like, you know, uh, put money into like positive things and you align them to actually good projects that are, you know, do something good and also are legit. Um, because there's lots of not legit ones as Tons. you've seen in, in crypto. Crypto is like rife with bullshit. Um, yeah, so I realized, okay, like doing that and becoming like a bulwark of sorts of these sorts of projects was uh, a big part of making these things reality. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought you said that people move for your company. You're not remote. No, we're not remote. Yeah. Why, so we're 100% in person. Why, why is that? We were remote probably until we were about 12 people. Uh, and we went and were like in person for five months together to get through to launch. And we just found our productivity was no less than 10x. Um, we accomplished in those five months what I think would have taken us like a year and a half otherwise. Um, and so we just said at the end of that, we'd actually grown during that, that five months to 23-ish to people. And we told everybody like, listen, we, we're going to be like, if we think we're going to win, um, we, we have to be in person. Um, we believe like that's the way to do it. And so everyone sort of had the decision between like, listen, either come and let's be in person and all go to Vancouver or, or find something else. And a hundred percent of people chose to, to come here. And then every new person has as well. So um, yeah, it's uh it's an interesting decision. Again, definitely not in the norm right now, but we think it has given us a, a massively competitive edge and just like really how we actually execute. Uh, yeah. I, I recall a reading 
Uh, I could have sworn I read that Elon Musk did something similar where he like, um, he wasn't really operating remote that much, or am I mistaken? Maybe no, yeah, or... I think I think you're right. Yeah, I um, okay. I, we we just he was at an event I was at recently, and he was just saying like he basically splits his time into each company, and he um, you know, he'll go and he'll um, be at Tesla during the morning, and then he'll go and. Uh, do SpaceX in the afternoon and like sleep at the Twitter headquarters. And like, he just, when he's there, he's a hundred percent there, but like each one of those places are their own things and he will be there uh, in person with them. Oh, okay. So he doesn't actually do a lot of the things remote. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's what he was saying. So he was, he was flying out uh, right after that to like go, go to Twitter headquarters to spend the whole evening there. And like, I but didn't like his, you know, Oh, but I guess he has to like take a fucking private jet to go. Yeah, to... he took he took a heli- he took a helicopter out to go. Uh, yeah. Uh, okay, because that was that was like what was the disconnect that I was thinking. Like this seems fucking possible, uh, unless you have, oops, a a helicopter or private yeah, jet. Yeah, unless you're Elon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, uh, I but mean, for, I guess for us, we're 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 all here. There's no moving around. One 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 headquarters. Everybody everybody here in person. So it's easier. Uh, okay, interesting. Yeah, I'm like thinking of like. I mean, I realized that was required for building community. I was trying to like come to terms with. Um, I personally decided to like come to LA uh, for a few different reasons, um, but I, I was like hopping around all over the place. For sure, it was like crushing my negative my productivity. I, I was like relentless though. I tend to be really extreme when I do things, and it. It gets to funny results. Um, but that is very interesting. You sound like a CEO, man. You're saying, oh, look, productivity is like way higher now that we're all together, like 1.5 times. Let's get, let's move all you guys together and come to Vancouver. Some. It was just like, it's this annoyance, right? The cost of coordination is just so high remote, right? When we were in person, I'd be working on something. Um, that I think will have a ton of impact. I'll have a question. I'll walk over. I'll tap the person on the shoulder. I'll be like, hey, this thing, like, how does it work? Why did you do this? They give me the answer. I walk back. When I'm remote, I send a message on Slack. I wait 15 minutes. They've read the message. They send me back a Google Meet link. I don't read it for 15 minutes, like 30 minutes yeah. to get, like, the same answer. And time zones, everything. It's just a nightmare. That's a fair point. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I've had issues like that running the podcast. But the podcast is far smaller, so maybe it's not that big of a deal. Um, for that to matter that much. And we have like WhatsApp groups and whatever. Uh, but yeah, uh, CEO problems. Um, would you, yeah, what would you, uh, would you say that poker has helped you become more of a businessman? Would you say that's, uh, it, or, or that it's helped you in crypto? I mean, yeah, I, I think in general, I think a lot of poker players who have transitioned to other things have just done really, really well at doing it. Um, largely because I think it's an amazing framework to think about problems in general. I think it conditions you to actually, uh, have logical skew. It conditions you to be desensitized to like short-term results or swings. Like you have to, you have to actually think about like, what is the, the net best decision on average, regardless of like the immediate outcome that comes. Um, and I just think like that framework is very underutilized, uh, in the world. So, so I do think there's a massive amount of us who have transitioned out and other things have like done very well. And I think it's largely just the way that poker players at a, at a, at a higher level learn to like think, think about 
things and then just apply that lens to the world. Well, yeah, I mean, I would call that critical thinking, whereas I feel like a lot of people these days, especially it's like a, um, a disease of judgmentality. Um, this would be one of, by the way, the uh, the social strategies that I refer to or parts of a culture that it's at least an American culture where people just judge very fast. One of my favorite songs, by the way, is literally called Without Judgment. Um, it's a metal song. Anyway, so... Big metal fan, so... Oh, I didn't know that. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Me too, but that's a secret. Um, anyway, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, poker really does teach you to not... It teaches you that your first judgments are wrong really a lot. Uh, it's really easy for things to be more complicated than they might seem, is, is what you say. That's my personal experience. Like, it definitely teaches that. It humbles you really f***ing fast. Um, and I also think it, there's one thing that's not that obvious, but it teaches you to, like, act on them also and, like, take initiative, which kind of lacking in today's world a bit as well. It's like people get kind of wrapped up in their own bullshit and don't do stuff, whereas that's, like, not so much intellectual it's kind of like the opposite of being intellectual. It's like doing shit. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's like one huge benefit to poker as well is that there's it's so easy for people to do something and just kind of convince themselves one way or another around like what actual truth is. Like it's very easy to like in a lot of efforts, it's very easy to get disconnected from reality. And poker like doesn't let you do that. The feedback loop is so fast that like, if you are not as good as you think you are, like you're going to realize it very, very, very quickly. Oh yeah. Um, yeah you know yeah. what I mean? Like, like that feedback loop conditions you to to have like a like a real observable reality. And I think uh, when you walk into other things, you, you maybe you just apply a lens that like maybe you delude yourself a little bit less on average than than most people do in other things. Where you're like doing something that's a little bit oh, fluffier sure. and like it didn't go well, and like oh, it's it's easy to write it off or, or yeah, what, whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, no, for sure. It has that combination of, of noise plus actual feedback loop. Um, another thing... Oh, by the way, I, I want to proselytize for a second. Can I do that? Sure. All right. Well, yoga, by the way, is literally translated as theory and practice. It's actually extremely logical, much more so than like even you might expect in, you know, from hearing about it from friends. Like, oh, let's do yoga, blah, blah, blah. And it's like this... Now it's like a cool thing to do, but no, this thing has been like extremely logical and like been around for a while. If you actually go back and see, you know, read into the philosophy of the yogis and stuff and all their beliefs, um, it's like not what people think it is. It's like more logical than the current ways of looking at things by like quite a bit in most situations. And this was kind of what got me really on this path was simply like applying that kind of poker logic towards social engineering and seeing that. You know, once you start looking at what happens when you behave as a bad person, it all comes down to some version of short-term gratification and, like, some sort of strategy that if you look through it and the distributions of it um, in, a, like, a really long-term lens, it doesn't really work out that well, uh, generally speaking. Um, but it's hard to really know for sure. Uh, I at least saw that a lot. Um, if you look at, like... I mean, the way, like, karma works is actually very much like how poker works, for example. Uh, I found that to be really interesting as well. Um, it's like certain things work a lot more logically than people might expect. Yeah.
But um, yeah, I can't help myself sometimes. I don't like to, uh, well, I do like to push my ideology, but it's not always popular. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm proud of, uh, I'm, I'm happy for your success. Good job. You really, uh, it's uh, yeah, inspiring. It makes I me think I could be a legit CEO too. I appreciate it. you actually of, of all in early poker. I don't remember the year that we did it, but there was a year. The first time I ever met you, we were in Vienna and we did some, um, some poker camp with, uh, Johannes Strassman, uh, you, and, um, I don't remember who two two other people, uh, yeah. but you changed the way that I thought about poker. Uh, like you had a lens that I had never seen somebody at that time think about the game through. And it was like very, very, very interesting for me. I, I don't, I, this year, the year was probably, it's probably 2009. Yeah. Somewhere around that, but it was like, it was very interesting. I, I, I credit you with like changing the way that I, that I thought about poker as a whole early on. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was awesome. So, um, appreciate it. Uh, thank you. So what was it that changed? Really, at the like at the time, people people were like pretty rudimentary. I think in all lenses, even the other sort of like coaches at that camp and, and how they thought about a framework for decision making. I always thought you know poker kind of had this evolution of like I have a hand and the opponent has like a specific hand to like oh actually like I have a hand they have a range so like I have a range they have a range and you thought about the world at the at the time in a way that most people didn't and just like like full sort of complete decision tree, probabilistic um, determination at like every single node in the tree, just in a, in a way like pre-solver, pre any of this before like people really thought through that. And so like people, when you would review hands on two plus two or talk to other kind of high stakes players, they would have like a very like, okay, like I look at this decision in this lens and like maybe you run equities and you do something there in that spot. And you just looked at it at like a like a broader, more holistic lens, at least from like a, a single branch or node in a time when like nobody did that. I mean, I, I knew and talked to like a lot of high stakes players at that time. And like it was just very different, uh, much more like rigorous and structured framework, I think, for, for thinking about how decisions were made at the time uh, before that kind of became widespread. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, that seems like common sense these days, but uh, all right, that's sweet. I'll take it. Yeah, um, yeah it, it is common sense these days, but you were you were early uh, and it, it definitely was uh, was was very different at the time. I'll say that um, a big thing that differentiates the way that I think about applying poker compared to people these days a lot of the time is I think actually Sauce was getting into this. He said, uh, I mean, basically, there's a bunch of little trees that just don't fucking matter. Or at least like the way people operate, they just don't play them with high efficiency. And so they lean like heavily towards one side. And I basically say, okay, this is the side that I see that people almost always fall on. Uh, one example that I'll give, by the way, it's a really subtle example. But in many situations where the action gets really obtuse and there's like a bet, three bet, whatever on the flop. It usually is after a point like such as like the three bet on the flop, for example. If there's a three bet on the flop, all of a sudden... Theory goes right the f out of the window, and people just play really, really, um, you know, predictably. And I, I would just say, okay, people lie on this end. Uh, basically, they just don't have, you know, all the weird things that they're supposed to have in these spots um, to make sure they have perfectly balanced ranges. And I would just say, okay, I'm going to exploit that. 
And that's what I do a lot of the time compared to most people. Um, exploit that like window where people tend to reside in a lot of the time. So um, do you actually like study those obtuse branches of those trees or do you mostly just like use a heuristic for how, how you think people, um, you know, once they've gone beyond kind of their, their knowledge of, uh, of, of balanced ranges in theory? Um, so I don't study them. I just say, okay, here's the heuristic. I'm going to exploit it now if I see them deviate, which is rare. I will adjust again based off of like what bracket they now fall into. Obviously it's not perfect, but like it gets yep. to the point where, why are you playing someone who's plays perfect anyway? But one idea that I've had recently is it looks like many trees are a lot more valid than I thought. And I thought, okay, what do, why don't I look at some of these trees and what, what look at what they look like if they're quite common and just take people there, see how they adjust. They're probably gonna adjust in pretty predictable ways in these sorts of situations as well and then like exploit them. It hasn't gone as smoothly as I thought in terms of like just trying to do that. Um, but I, I like haven't studied, it's just a, a theme of an idea of sorts that seems like it could change. It could change the way games are played radically, but uh, it, it requires a bit of effort for a few reasons. Just, um, just, just to be clear, you're talking about like taking a, let, you know, you have, you have a bunch of different possible trees that you could have. One of them is maybe slightly suboptimal from like the perfectly optimal tree, but is totally valid and viable to some small deviation. But it plays very differently than people are used yes. to, such that you think applying that tree, putting them in situations they don't, they'll play poorly, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. And it looks like yeah, there's a really high chance that that's, that that's the case. I thought of this in the past. I just thought like there's not that much point in it. But actually the... I thought that there was like a small difference in the sizings, but it's actually way smaller than I thought. Um, the sizing is a little bit more arbitrary than people than what people think, but it seems to matter how um, how you play your ranges overall, given the sizing that you use versus um, you know what precise sizing that you pick. So actually, even the old school ways of using all these normal sizing is probably okay versus like today's way it's just like now people have like play their ranges better overall yeah. um they've actually like accidentally become better overall even though the strategy with the sizings looks quite a bit different it's just that like because they're following what the machine is doing they're they're now playing a more a stronger strategy uh, they're it's just it, the sizings is a little bit is, is is like somewhat unnecessary. Um, by the way, this whole idea of like looking at the range of possibilities of like how that plays out against, you know, your opponents, etc. I mean, I think that's one thing that I am unique at for when it comes to social interaction is that, you know, with someone who was uh, mildly autistic, I was forced to kind of break down my and like change my own social behavior, which I think a lot of people didn't have to do. But that led me towards the idea of like looking at different possibilities of my actions and seeing, okay, well, if I change in these kinds of ways, people actually behave in a more positive way. Um, and this like led more and more to this idea of like behaving, you know, having to be, you know, a better person or a more functional person. And I think a lot of people just haven't really realized that for themselves is that, you know, you're not who you're, who you're like, you're not your character in terms of like whether you're mean or whatever to people and you can change all of that and you can just become a better person if you want to be and like the a lot of the times people don't see to what extent they actually do self-sabotage themselves or what potential they can do 
with like how they respond to people and things like that. Um, basically, the idea of applying ranges in poker with like dealing with people. It's kind of like if you're nice to someone, they're probably going to be nice back, right? Or if you're good in certain ways, they're probably going to be good back. You don't really know, but what if if you just like constantly extended offers to people and like see how people respond? Like in theory, that can be a really scalable situation. What I'm essentially trying to do, by the way, is create that in mass is say, find all the people that are like, okay, I'm on board with this idea. Let's all keep supporting each other. The principle, by the way, is, you know, something like love your neighbor as yourself and business even heads in this direction and, and be like, okay, let's create a fucking community of actually doing this and just keep reiterating in this direction and it should lead to like parabolic, you know, positivity essentially. Um, but it's essentially, the, it's the idea of applying ranges towards people and like creating instead, instead of it being like a less than zero sum situation, more like a parabolically positive situation. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Super interesting. But, yeah. But that's, uh, that's what I've been in, uh, uh, on it, uh, in, in, into lately. Um, but it, yeah, again, um, Congrats on your success. Uh, very impressive. And um, any anything else you want to talk about before you we, you've got to go? Do you want to uh, talk more about Layer Zero? Do you want to talk more about the plans or mention anything else you'd like to sponsor? No, 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 no. In general, uh, glad to catch up. Thanks, thanks for having me. And uh, I mean, people can uh, people can look me up if they ever have any questions about about anything. So yeah, uh, layer zero stuff's easy to find. Sure. Well, yeah. Thank you for your time, Brian. Thanks for having me.